Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you once again that we can come together and be encouraged from your word, that we can behold the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have saved us, you have made us your own. And as we come to you, Lord, we just ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. May you stir in us affections to love Christ more. May you also challenge us in our walk to put our full reliance on you alone. And I pray for myself as I bring the word. May you give me clarity and wisdom as I deliver it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I have a, a hard task. When we began the book of Philippians, I preached on two verses. <laughs> as we are beginning the epistle to the church at Colossae, we're going to try to tackle 14 verses all in one sermon and on Communion Sunday to have enough time at the end. But bear with me. I want to bring you to a year, and that year is 1974. For some of you, this is a year that you remember very clearly. For others of you, this was a year when you were growing up and still a kid. And for others of us, it was a year that we were yet to be born, or many years from our birth. But this was a year when the infamous religious movement Heaven's Gates was founded by Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite, a son of a Presbyterian minister and a nurse. Studying the Bible using the King James, they focus on a couple New Testament topics, Christology, the study about Christ, and eschatology, the end times. Now, this was a journey toward spiritual discovery. They were both identified, they identified themselves as the two witnesses in Revelation. And because of this, they attracted several hundred people in 1976, a core group of a few dozen instituted a monastic lifestyle. They sold everything that they had, and they began this journey across the United States, sleeping in tents, sleeping bags, and begging on the streets. They helped their members achieve a, quote, higher evolutionary level, which Nettles and Applegate claimed to have already achieved and everyone else just needed to catch up to. This was a group described as a mixture of New Age ufology, the central belief was that followers could transform themselves into immortal extraterrestrial beings by rejecting their human nature. And that they would ascend to the next level and ascend to heaven using a UFO. Now this belief was challenged when Nettles died from cancer in 85 and the group later came to believe that the body was merely a vehicle for the next for the soul and that their consciousness would be transferred to the next level bodies upon death. And so on October 1996, they rented a large home down in Southern California, 9,200 square feet, and were gathering there. And in March 19 of 97, Applewhite spoke of a mass suicide as the only way to evacuate this earth and persuaded 38 people to prepare for the ritual suicide. And on March 26, 1997, 38 people were found dead in this home. Now, this example from history is a clear reminder to us that what we believe dictates how we live our life. What we believe dictates the actions that we take. Heaven's Gate is not the only example of what this looks like. If you remember not too long ago, the prayer of 
Jabez. God is going to bless you, enlarge your territory, and let your hand be with me. Yet, we are not part of the Davidic line. We do not have a physical territory like Israel. And this prayer was not for us living in America. Yet it took the Christian culture by storm. Similar to that, the prosperity gospel is another one of these ideas that people believe in, that you can give money and God is going to bless you 10x or 100 times. Taking on a monk lifestyle or asceticism, asceticism meaning that we need to cut away from the comforts of life to achieve a greater closeness to the Lord. And around the corner, there's always another teaching, another book that you need to read. Another thing you need to try to really be truly spiritual to reach that higher power. You see, the things that are around us today are the things that we as humans tend to gravitate toward. It's one more experience that we need to have. It's one more act that we need to do to be truly spiritual. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul combats in his letter to the believers at Colossae. It's a heresy that touched both religious and pagan beliefs. And I want you to turn with me to chapter 2, verse 8, and I want you to see these words as I read them. Paul is calling them to this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Nobody ensnares you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so we find these ideas, these false ideas at the end of chapter 2, where to attain new spiritual heights, what you need to do, number one, is ritualism. This was Jewish ceremonialism. It was a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You need to do something like a dietary law and observe a holy day for you to really be spiritual. In verses 20 and onward, we read of asceticism, self-denial and harsh treatment of the body. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we've heard of those as well as we're growing up, maybe in religious homes, of how to be really spiritual. You have to keep away from certain things. Mysticism in verse 18 of chapter 2, the worship of angels going on in details about vision. And lastly, Gnosticism, this idea that the flesh and matter is evil, but the spirit is good. And there's this spark within you that's going to give you this higher knowledge. You're going to know something more than anybody else. And so to summarize all of these false beliefs, the idea that all of them are bringing is this. You are lacking something that you still need to attain. And what does Paul say to combat all of this? Ideas and false notions and false notions. Well, if you're still in chapter 2, look with me in verses 9 and 10. Paul is saying this, You are lacking nothing because you are sufficient in Christ. For in him <clears throat> the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And hear these words, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ is sufficient for all of your needs, whether spiritual, emotional, salvific needs, or interpersonal needs that you have. And there's no place in our life where Christ's supremacy and Christ's sufficiency does not reach. And so this heresy had arisen, and Epaphras was so concerned about this heresy that was going on in this tri-city that he took a round trip, 1,300-mile round trip to Paul in Rome while Paul was in jail during the summer of A.D. 62 to present these issues to Paul. 
And we read in chapter 1, verse 7, if you look there with me, Paul says this, I have learned this about the situation of the church at Colossae from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So what does Paul do upon hearing the news? Well, what Paul always does, he writes a letter. And sometimes his letters are lengthy and sometimes they are short. Sometimes they're extremely theological and sometimes they're a bit more practical. The church was not yet permeated with this heresy. We must understand that. So Paul is warning about this. This letter is a letter of concern, saying there are false religions, false truth out there. And I want to make sure that you are not falling prey to them. Various philosophies to lead you off track. And specifically, the idea that Christ is not enough. The idea that you need something else to add to your spirituality. And so therefore, at the outset of this letter, if you look with me in verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By contrast, in the book of Philippians, Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. Doesn't mention his apostleship. Here, Paul mentions his apostleship to establish authority because he did not found this church. He is writing this letter and he's bringing up his apostleship because this situation demanded some confrontation. But at the same time, Paul highlights the humility. It is by the will of God that he is an apostle. And he mentions Timothy. Because at the end of his life, in the early 60s, Paul is soon going to pass from this earth. And Timothy is going to be the protege to carry the light of the gospel into the places that Paul has already ministered to. And so, what is the book of Colossians going to bring to us as a church? What is it going to encourage us in or challenge us in? And I want to mention a few things that this book is going to do for us as, as a church. Number one, I would love for this book to strengthen us in the glory of Christ's all-sufficiency. You see, everything around us screams that we need to add to Jesus. And we're not talking necessarily about salvation because that's the book of Galatians. Jesus plus something equals that you're accepted before God. The book of Colossians is slightly different. For you to be complete, you need to add something to Jesus. But in this book, we see Paul often saying, you're complete in him, you're established in him. Jesus is enough for you when you're battling your flesh in chapter 3 or when you're parenting in chapter 4 and in your marriage in chapter 3. For you to bear and to forgive others. And as it is in every book, Paul lays out first the truth and then calls us to action in the second half. All of our life flows out of the fact that Christ is enough for us. Secondly, I would love this book to clarify for us the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Multiple times, Paul, even in our section this morning, calls us to the truth. There is one singular truth. There's the power of the gospel. And then there's a lot of lies around us. And so, Paul is calling the church of Colossae to not shift from the hope of the gospel. And may we do the same. And lastly, flowing out from being strengthened and having a clarification about the hope of the gospel, I would love for this book to instruct us in a well-rounded Christian living. We have to see that the way that we live the Christian life flows out from who we believe Jesus to be. Who we believe Jesus is 
dictates how we respond to him. And I want to give you a few examples of this. If we go to the book of John, the gospel of John, we see that there is a woman at the well who says, I know that you are a prophet come from God. And therefore, because she believed that he was a prophet, she related to him by asking him questions, that he's a messenger from God. So give me some more truth. If we see Jesus as a good teacher, then we're going to be Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus to learn from him, and he says, we know that the things that you're saying, not everyone says, so you must come from God, but you're a good moral teacher. We see that the centurion standing at the cross says, truly this man was the son of God, and then he related to him in that way. These are just glimpses, but Colossians gives us the true identity of Christ, that he is supreme and that he is sufficient. And so how we view Christ is going to dictate how we live every day of our life. Listen to some of these truths found in this book. Jesus is the head of all principality and power, the Lord of creation, the author of reconciliation, the basis for the believer's hope, the source of the believer's power for new life, the believer's redeemer and reconciler, the embodiment of full deity, the creator and sustainer of all things, the head of the church, the resurrected God-man, and the all-sufficient Savior. To summarize, Jesus is, as Colossians 3.11 would say, all in all. Do we see him like that? And therefore, the theme of the book of, the, of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. And so as we get to our passage, we start with an introduction here of a thanksgiving and prayer. Like many of Paul's opening letters, he thanks the church and prays for them, although not all of them. We know how Corinthians and Galatians begin. But here, Paul First, thanks them. And as he is thanking them, we're going to see some key insights of what is happening in the book. Because the specific things that Paul thanks the church for are themes and ideas that he is combating against. And so as we unravel these verses, let's look at this idea of the gospel at work. Paul's prayer and thanksgiving. Once again, the gospel at work. Paul's prayer and thanksgiving. Paul wants to remind them of the work of the gospel. It is the gospel that saved them and it is bearing fruit and increasing. And it is not any other teachings other than the gospel that is enough for their life. And so let's first look at Paul's thanksgiving. Paul's thanksgiving is broken up in two parts. When Paul thanks them and then what Paul thanks them for. And in verse 3 we see that this thanksgiving is expressed to God in prayer. It is expressed to God in in prayer. We read here in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. When do we thank you? When we're praying for you. Paul is saying that I hold you dear in my heart because you are also in my prayers, church at Colossae. Although you're a small church, which we will see Although you're not many in number, but I know you and I pray for you. And so Paul is praying for them. So what do we know about this, this church? Well, in verse 2, we read that they're the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So physically, they're in Colossae. Spiritually, they are in Christ. A little bit of a background of where this is at geographically. Colossae is a small town located in the Lycus Valley. 
It's close to two other cities, Hierapolis and then Laodicea, which was the chief city of the district. It was the city of wealth. And this was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And this actually gives us a clue of how the church began. Because we read in Acts 19 and 20 that Paul was at Ephesus for three years teaching and preaching. And so think about 100 miles away is this tri-city and one of them is the church at Colossae. And so we read, All they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And this would include people in Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. And so the gospel is progressing, the gospel is growing, this outgrowth of Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus leads to churches being planted by lay people such as Epaphras, who brought the gospel to this region. It was a small town, as one commentator says, it was the least important city to which any epistle of Paul is addressed. In terms of size in Philemon 2, it shows that the house of Philemon was the center of assembly for the church, although we would say there's probably more gatherings, but the center of assembly was at, the, at this at Philemon's homes. It was primarily made up of Gentiles, but there are also some Jews and Greeks because of these ideas of elemental spirits and philosophy. In terms of economics, we have both those who are slaves and those who are masters. And although this is a small group of people, Paul calls them in verse 2, saints and faithful brothers in Christ. They were dead in their trespasses and sins that he mentions in chapter 2, but now they've been made alive in Christ. They've heard the hope of the gospel, they received Christ, and now they're changed. And so Paul is thanking God for them. He didn't personally found the church, but he heard of their faith. So what is Paul exactly thanking them for? Second thing we see here is that he is encouraged by the Colossians' growth. He is encouraged by the Colossians' growth, so he prays for them when, when he is praying and then for why he is praying or what is the content. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. As we get to these verses, the topic that Paul highlights is specifically the gospel. He is sharing the fact that the gospel has changed their life because of the work of God. The love and faith that they have in their life is because of the gospel coming in and completely transforming them. And specifically, he mentions this idea that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. It happened since the day they heard of it. And then he repeats himself and says, just as you've learned from Epaphras, and you've understood the grace of God in truth. The reminder here is this, just as you have begun your salvation in Christ, continue in that same way. When Christ was enough for you day one, he's still enough for you in year seven. That they should not deviate or turn to any other teachings in the gospel, which is currently bearing fruit and increasing, and not only like it says here, all across the world, but specifically he says, among you believers. And say they, so they don't need Greek philosophy or Jewish ritualism. They don't need an internal spark of knowledge because they have the gospel. And this is why he says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so the nature of their growth is this. He's thanking them for the work of the gospel in their life and their growth. And specifically, what is their growth in? And it's twofold. It is in their faith and in their love. 
The idea here of faith, he says, because I have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of, number two, the love. So the faith that he's talking about is not a faith of knowledge, but a faith of life, a faith of living. So it's not practice of faith, but uh, it's not presence of faith simply that they believe, but more so of a practice of faith. It is faith not in Christ Jesus, he's saying here, but faith directed toward Christ Jesus. And that's why he even calls them faithful brothers in Christ in verse 2. These are believers that are living out their salvation. They're living out their faith. This is what the whole gospel of John is about. The term or noun faith is never used. It's always the verb believe. Because to believe in Christ or have faith in Christ means that you have an ongoing walk with Christ and it is living. There's a practice of it. And so Paul says to the church of Colossae, you are faithful. You are living out this faith. Not only do you know it, but you're living like Christ. Number two, he talks about sacrificial love. That's the word here. It's agape in the Greek, the love that you have for all the saints. Agape reminded them of the sacrificial love of Christ for them, and they replicated that with one another. And second of all, this love was indiscriminate. It says here it was for all of the saints. Isn't that an amazing church context to be a part of? I love the church, not the church as only a whole, but I love individuals in the church, but not certain only individuals in the church. I love every single individual in the church, no matter of their preferences, no matter of their character, no matter of their background, no matter if we mesh easily or we do not. I have an indiscriminate love toward every single individual in the church. And this is what Paul is thanking them for. This is the kind of community that they have at this church. What a beautiful picture of Christian living. A true, genuine faith and a sacrificial love. And the basis of why they have this, the basis for their growth, is found in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope is such a wonderful Christian term. Doesn't hope drive pretty much everything that we do in our life? We would not be going to college for four years if we did not have hope that we'd get a piece of paper that would get us, the, the, get us the job that we would want to have. If you didn't have hope that placing an order at the drive through line would yield tasty burgers, you would not get in line. If you didn't have hope that on the wedding day, two are better than one, it's not good for men to be alone, then you would all be single this morning. But you have hope. You believe it's an objective hope. Paul is not speaking about this subjective kind of hope, a feeling. Paul is talking about an objective hope. And we know that because he clarifies this hope. This is a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This is not a hope that you feel. This is a hope that's a reality that Christ has made for you. The hope that is laid up for you in heaven. What is that hope? The hope of salvation. The hope that as Christ has been raised from the dead, you have been raised to newness of life. The hope that as Christ has died and you were buried with him in baptism, that is the hope that he's speaking about here. Hope offered in Christ inspires assurance. Friends, this is where the Christian life, we live out of this kind of living, is it not? The objective hope of what Christ has done overflows in the fact that I can have genuine faith and live sacrificially to the people that are around me. This is what produces this kind of fruit in our life. We see that this hope comes from 
the gospel. In verse 7, just as you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Going back again to Paul's ministry at Ephesus, there's at least two men from Colossae that were brought to faith, Epaphras and Philemon. Epaphras was one of the key founders of the church at Colossae. We also hear his name mentioned with cities like Hierapolis and Laodicea. And Paul highlights the word truth two times in these verses. Look with me at the end of verse 5. He talks about the word of truth and he specifies what is that word of truth, Paul? Well, the word of truth is the gospel in contrast to all the false beliefs out there. And then again in verse 6, the grace of God in truth. And so the truth has been heralded. The truth has been proclaimed. The truth has pierced hearts. The truth has broken hard hearts of men. And the gospel as the remedy to all of man's problems has come in. And so this hope comes because of the gospel what Christ has done. And very interestingly, this gospel is described in two ways. It is bearing fruit and growing in verse 6. As indeed it is in the whole world, yes, it started with Ephesus, and now it has reached Colossae, and is going to keep going to the ends of the earth, to California, and to the Bay Area, into India, and China, and to South Africa, and to Central Asia, and to Europe. It's going to go all across the world. That is what the gospel does, because it is a living gospel, as we see here. It is bearing fruit and growing. It is alive. You cannot stunt the gospel. You cannot hinder gospel growth because this is God's work. It is a living gospel. It is bearing fruit and increasing. It is productive. The gospel accomplishes the work that God intends, but not only is it in the whole world, but it is bearing fruit and increasing in the lives of the members at Colossae. Paul, why do you use these words to describe the gospel in this way? You have yet to use these words to describe the gospel in other letters, but specifically here to the church of Colossae, this is what you're saying. It is because what was happening and that what could have happened is that the believers at Colossae could start seeing the gospel as something that they started in, but for them to truly move forward in their Christian walk, they really needed some higher knowledge. They really needed some religious acts. They really needed some asceticism. I'm going to stay away from certain things to truly feel, feel spiritual. And Paul knows that. And so he's saying the gospel as it was at day one, alive and bearing fruit and growing, and now three years later, and now 10 years later, and 25 and 30 years later, for some of you, it is still the same gospel that is enough for you. And so we never move on from the gospel. The gospel is not only the doorway into salvation. The gospel is the path that we walk to reach the final destination. What is the gospel about? The gospel is about the person and the work of Christ. And friends, we never move on from the person and the work of Christ in our life. The Colossian heresy at the core is diminishing 
the person and the work of Christ. It is saying Christ is not enough. And Paul is going to say in verses 15 and onward, as Chris will bring us the word next Sunday, that he is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He as Christ is supreme over all things. Don't forget that. Oh, and he is sufficient for you in all of your needs. I want to read, and I think I have it on the screen so you can follow with me, who God's Son is, who Jesus Christ is. This is what the book of Colossians presents to us. He is God's Son. He is the object of the Christian's faith. He is the Redeemer, the image of God, the Lord of creation, the head of the church, the reconciler of the universe. Amen. In him dwells the fullness of Godhead. He is the essence of the mystery of God, and in him all God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie hidden. By his cross, he conquered the cosmic powers of evil. And following his resurrection, he was enthroned at the right hand of God. Our life now lies hidden with God in Christ, but one day he and we will be gloriously manifested. That is what awaits us. That is who Christ is for us. What more do we need, friends? What more are we lacking in our life? And so Paul expresses thanks. He expresses it to God in prayer. And he is encouraged by the Colossians' growth. And this is why he is thanking God for them. And I want to ask you, is this a description of your life? Are you marked by these two marks of genuine faith and sacrificial love? Is the gospel bearing fruits and increasing in your life? Are you growing in your knowledge of the work of Christ? Are you leaning on him to be your sufficient savior? Or are you seeking to be complete in the struggles and the hard times of life as Ed shared with us this morning with other things, with supplements instead of with the natural, all-satisfying grace of Jesus Christ. The reason why this is important is because, as John Calvin writes, suppose we ponder how slippery is the fall of the human mind into forgetfulness of God. How great the tendency to every kind of error. How great the lust to make constantly new and artificial religions we must come, I say, to the word where God is truly and vividly described to us from his works. While these very works are appraised, not by our depraved judgment, but by the rule of eternal truth. And so do you find your sufficiency in him alone? Do you remember that at the beginning when he saved you, he was fully enough and he is so much enough for you today? That the gospel does not change. Let us beware of this Colossian heresy that you are, quote, not complete in Christ. No philosophy, religious acts, higher knowledge will ever make you closer to God or give you a greater hope that you are right with God. The greatest hope that we have is that Christ, the justifier, took our place. Condemned we stood, but he came in And he substituted himself on our behalf, 
willingly, not because of compulsion, because he was a willing servant so that he could bring us to himself. Do you not understand what is the ultimate goal of salvation? Not that we get heaven, but we get Christ who is in heaven. Colossians 3.1, we are seated with him in the heavenly places where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And this is what the letter to the Colossians is about, that everything that we need for life and godliness is found in Christ. In Jesus, lover of my soul, the author writes, You, O Christ, are all I want. More than all in you I find. You raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick, and lead the blind. Just and holy is your name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin am I. You are full of truth and grace. I would just love to say amen and be done. But we must also look at the prayer of Paul. And there are four things that I want to highlight for you as we look at Paul's prayer. In verses 9 to 14, Paul not only thanks the church for the gospel and the good work that God has done in their life, he then prays for them. Because yes, we are in good standing with Christ we are progressing in the gospel, but there's one thing we must never forget is we need the constant grace of God in our life through prayer. We need to constantly be connected to him. He is the vine. We are the branches for us to do any gospel work. We must be connected with him. And so the first thing we see in verse 9 is this idea of unceasing prayer. Paul begins with these words, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. The day we heard, the day when Epaphras brought us the message that there could be a heresy that could come into the church, there's some false teaching, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now talk about faithfulness. Talk about the seriousness of prayer. This past week we've been meditating and thinking about how to grow in prayer as a church. We have a prayer meeting that we announced this morning at 10 a.m. that it happens every Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to pass out prayer cards to the whole church, and we're going to ask you to write down a praise and maybe a prayer request that you have so that our prayer team can be praying for you. Prayer is vital, and so Paul's in jail. The church is 700 Miles away, he prays for them. Because although he can't be physically present, but he knows one. He knows one who can enter their life and be for them that solid anchor in the midst of various lies. You know, when Spurgeon was asked what led him to be such a successful preacher, write so many books, have 600 baptisms a year at their church, this is what he said. The secret to his success, he said, was men and women down in the basement of the church on their knees praying for him. He was a man of prayer. And so, learning from Paul, Spurgeon did this, but Paul is our first and foremost example. He's always praying for all the churches at all times, and he is doing this. He is not asking He's not stopping or ceasing to ask that God would work in their life. 
And so I want to remind you, never stop asking God to work in your life and in the life of others. Never stop asking God to work in your life and the life of others. How is your prayer life this morning? Paul is an example for us. He leaves us a template of specific things to pray for and how to pray. So have you grown weary in praying? Is it at times tiresome and cumbersome to come to the Lord to prayer even though at times the needs are not met or you don't get the answers quickly? The principle here teaches us that prayer is the lifeblood of a Christian. What breathing is to the body, prayer is for the soul. And so Paul is unceasingly praying for the church at Colossae. And he's specifically asking that certain things are going to happen that, that he wants to happen in their life. That he wants God to intervene and do a few things. And so don't stop asking God to work in your life. And specifically, Paul brings up the goal of prayer. He is asking something. We do not cease. We do not cease. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is the goal of prayer. Secondly, the goal of prayer. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. The idea here is that Paul is praying that the believers of Colossae would be controlled by God in their life, that God would have full control over their life. Be filled with the knowledge of his will is this idea that not to live your life like you want to live, not to buy the house with the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and have the great salary in the Bay Area and go on a couple vacations a year and have fun with your friends, not the life that we want to create for ourselves and for our kids, but the life that God would desire for us. That God would have control over our life. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. What does this mean? Paul is asking, that God, asking God to give the Colossians greater knowledge. Knowledge is not simply learned, but it is revealed. He's praying, Lord, can you reveal your will to these believers at Colossae? Can you reveal your will to them that they should be content in Christ? Can you reveal your will that Christ is enough for them? That they are complete in Christ and all of their lacks find their satisfaction in the one who created them in Christ himself? Can you reveal your will to them so that they would come to you and not go to external functional saviors that never satisfy but keep them broken. Maybe like the people of Israel in the Old Testament who went to broken cisterns and idols and never found satisfaction. You see, friends, Satan is so deceptive. He likes to borrow Christian vocabulary, but he does not use the Christian dictionary. And so at times... Knowing God's will, it seems like we're right in it. This is what sacrifice means. And maybe the sacrifice that you're thinking about may be a sacrifice that is not fully biblical. Maybe a serving that we think of at times may not be a serving that is fully biblical. Maybe it might be a way that Satan, who for 6,000 6, years knows how to 
uh, make us feel good about ourselves says, well, you know, service is just this, just sacrifice this much. That's, everyone will be content. That's enough for you. Spurgeon said that discernment is not knowing right from wrong, but knowing right from almost right. Specifically, Paul is telling that instead of being filled with philosophy, empty deceit, and higher knowledge, they need to be filled with the will of God. And he qualifies it by saying that this knowledge of his will, how? In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, to make it simpler for us to understand, it is, can be said this way, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And so, these two words suggest the ability to discern truth from error. And how amazing it is that God has given us His Holy Spirit so that we're able to discern truth from error in the maze of first century worldview options. What is best for us in life? How amazing it is we can lean on the Spirit who gives us understanding and wisdom. And so, Paul is praying for the church of Colossae to live in light of what they know. To ask God to help them to live in light of what they know. And so, I want to ask you, are you asking God to help you live differently because of what you know that he has revealed in his will? The third thing is the result of God's control, or really the result of prayer. What is the result of prayer? We know the purpose of prayer is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. What is the result of that? What happens? In verse 10, we begin with this little word where it says, So, so as to walk worthy in a manner worthy of the Lord. The result of prayer and the results of God's control in your life and walking in his will is simple. It is a changed life. You see, it all begins with prayer. It begins with aligning our thinking with God's thinking, our views with God's view, leading us to a changed life because of, God, of the results of God's control in our life. And the first thing is walking worthy. The idea of walking worthy is this idea of a scale. So think of a scale. On one side, you put in something. You put in a few quarters. On the other side, you put in a couple rocks and you try to weigh it out so that they even up. And so to walk worthy means that you are living in line with who you say you are. Your identity in Christ and your walk in Christ, they level up. Which leads to us fully pleasing God. God is our Father. We are His children. He finds joy and happiness when we're walking in a way that's pleasing to Him because we are walking in obedience to him. This idea of walking is an Old Testament term to, to be with God, and ultimately, really, it's a term that signifies obedience. You see, in the Old Testament, the word Shema in the Hebrew was to listen, but it actually has a dual meaning. Shema is to listen, but also to obey. What is listening without obedience? Is it not disobedience? We do not judge our children that they are obedient because they listened to us and heard the words. We judge the obedience of our children that they listened and they acted upon them. And so, 
the results of God's control and prayer in your life is this changed life where you are walking with God in obedience, where you are hearing what he's saying. And because your mind is so transformed and in line with God's purposes, what you hear from him, you quickly agree and you implement it into your life. It is because his ways are perfect and his will is perfect and all that he's created is perfect. And so you say, Lord, of course I will agree with you and now I will live my life like you call me to live. This is the result of prayer in life. It's walking worthy. Number two, it is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit and specifically in every good work. Wouldn't you love to have fruit in all aspects of your life? Fruit in your parenting, fruit in your marriage, fruit with coworkers, fruit with your grandchildren, fruit with uh, your neighbors, fruit when you are talking to people, fruit when you're fellowshipping with believers at home group and when you're with them at Starbucks, having a coffee, bearing fruit in every good work. This idea of Psalm 1, the one that's planted next to the streams of living water is evergreen. There's never a yellow leaf. It's always green. Paul is saying here, and he's praying for the church of Colossae, that this is what happens when you are praying and in God's will, you are bearing fruit in every good work. Thirdly, you're also increasing in God's knowledge. And here is the difference between the first knowledge that we see of verse 9 and the knowledge that we see here in verse 11. And the knowledge here in verse 11 is this kind of knowledge. It's an interpersonal knowledge of God. See, the, the knowledge of his will is this idea of illumination of truth. The knowledge here that we find in verse 10 is this knowledge of a personal communion with God. Because you have now known God's revealed will, you have applied it in your life, and now you're walking with God, now you experience this experiential knowledge of God. Where you experience God's faithfulness, God's love in your life. And many of you this morning have experienced that. And that sweetness, that sweetness of the knowledge of God, when he has brought you through thick and thin, through the valleys and the mountaintops. And lastly, you are strengthened with power. Lastly, it's strengthened with power. May you be strengthened with all power. This is the results of God's control. What does this mean? That God is strengthening you. It's in the passive. God is strengthening you. Why? For what? Or how? First of all, it's according to his great might. According to his great might. Not according to his might. Once again, friends, according to his great might. And for the purpose, all endurance and patience with joy. <clears throat> I need that. All endurance and patience but the qualifier of patience is it's a patience with joy. How many of you guys are patient with joy? How many of you would want this patience with joy as a result of prayer in your life? Here it is. God strengthens us to endure and be patient with joy. And the idea here for the believers at Colossae and for us this morning is this. Depend on God to live a changed life. Depend on God to live a changed life. And so lastly, the reason of 
prayer. We see the results of prayer, but what's the, what's the reason why we pray? Paul has started this sentence in verse 9, and he's just like run off sentence, just like Ephesians 1, because he can't even take a breath, and he keeps going of why we pray, what's the purpose of prayer, the results of prayer, and he ultimately gets us to why do we pray? What's the reason of prayer? In verse 12, he begins with this. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He gets to the place of the character of the one who we give thanks to. The reason why we pray is because God has done his great work in our life. We pray because of the position that we have in Christ that we're united to him because of the work of the Father. He's reminding them of their inheritance. He's reminding them of their privileges of the new covenant. How can I not pray? How can I not come to the Lord throughout the day, in the morning, in the evening? When life is hard, when life is easy, and say, God, thank you for this wonderful salvation. There are millions and billions of people in this world who have yet to hear the gospel, the good news that the Church of Colossae heard, the good news that we hear, yet we have an inheritance. We have a possession with Christ. We have salvation. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're going to be seated with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And what did we have to do? We just had to believe. We had to look upon the cross. And be saved just like the people of Israel looked upon the snake. The Father, a few things I want to highlight here, has qualified us to share in the inheritance. And how did he qualify us? Specifically, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. On the negative side, delivered us from that domain of darkness. The darkness that the church of Colossae was in. And he transferred them to the king of his, kingdom of his beloved son. Poverty to riches, darkness to light, lack of purpose to purposeful living, clarity in parenting, marriage, relationships, or lack of clarity to clarity in all those areas. This is what he did. He transferred us. And so, for us, the reminder is this. Give thanks to God for all that he's done for you. And so Paul in this greeting, in this introduction to this letter, you see how he combats false notions that he's going to bring up in the rest of the letter. A heresy that is surrounding the church of Colossae in that region. And the first thing he does is he thanks God for them because of the gospel and what Christ has done in their life. And he says, you are firmly already established in the gospel, continue to persevere in the gospel. And second of all, I want to remind you, Church of Colossae, believers who are there, faithful ones in Christ Jesus, I'm continuing to pray for you. I'm continuing to pray that you would know the Lord and walk faithfully. And that as your mind is transformed, you would reject all heresy, all false teaching, all notions that Christ is not enough and find your sufficiency in him. We began with this idea that what we believe dictates how we live our life. And there are serious consequences to what we believe in our life. It is true in every part of our life, but even more specifically, our spiritual life, our Christian walk. And I hope that this morning, our passage has 
reminded you of who Jesus is. That Jesus is your sufficient Savior. That he is the supreme Lord of the universe. That you can trust him. That you can rely on him. That you can cast your cares on him. That you can come to him and get plugged in to the one who has all the resources in the universe at his disposal, ready to give to you as his needy child. That he is the fullness of God and that you have been filled in him. Steve Fernandez, who founded Cornerstone Seminary in 2004 and went to be with the Lord because of a brain tumor in in the early 2010s, he wrote a book about the sufficiency of Christ combating various kinds of help that this world offers and that even the Christian world begins to adapt when it comes to counseling. And Steve wrote this, the church for centuries has proclaimed the Christ who transforms and changes. It has proclaimed a glorious, all-sufficient Savior whose power through the word and through the spirit is more than adequate to deliver anyone from any bondage. In Scripture, God's people are continually encouraged to rest in Christ's all-sufficiency. Christ encourages his people to do so. So the title of this message this morning, Gospel Growth, is a reminder for us that our Christian life began by seeing the beauty and glory of Christ And our Christian life continues by beholding the glory and the beauty of Christ. And as we begin this series in this wonderful book, unraveling for us the sufficiency of our Savior Jesus Christ, let us embrace the message that Paul brings to the church at Colossae. And it is this, and I want you to remember this as we study it throughout this whole summer. You are complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ. And let the words of this song echo in our life. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, and Jesus is my life. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he willingly came from the glories of heaven, humbled himself, took on a form of a servant, and died that shameful death on our behalf. Thank you for your word that clarifies for us so many things in life, that reminds us of the beauty of your son, of his power and his sufficiency. We now ask, would you help us to lean on you, to lean on all that he has done for us, to be content and abide in him alone, pray these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen.